Now, as you saw uh, in the last week's passage we read, uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, went to Lystra, and after they preached the gospel, they healed a crippled man. And the whole city was amazed, and they thought that two of the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, had come among them. And so the whole city wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. But of course, Paul and Barnabas, they were horrified when they realized what the city was attempting to do because they knew, didn't they, that glory and thanks belong only to God. And Paul and Barnabas, with great difficulty, we read in verse 18, with great difficulty restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But we see in this passage that the mood of the adoring crowd quickly soured. And that brings us to the first uh, observation, which is the stoning of Paul. The stoning of Paul. Now we read in this passage that Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And if you remember, uh, Paul and Barnabas were sent there to, uh, to Antioch and Iconium as missionaries. And there they proclaimed Christ and God blessed the ministry of the gospel. And many Jews and Gentiles believed and they were converted to the Lord. Uh, but in Antioch and Iconium, the Christian missionaries also met stiff opposition from the Jews. Uh, in fact, Paul and Barnabas came to Lystra precisely because the Jews threats, uh, threatened them in Antioch and Iconium. So it was the Jews' threats against their lives that brought them to Lystra in the first place. Uh, however, as Paul and Barnabas, as the missionaries of the gospel and as the missionaries of the church, as they proclaimed Jesus, the unbelieving Jews also sent their own missionaries who, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now Luke spares us the gory details. But why would they suppose that Paul was dead? Well, he, they supposed that he was dead because, you know, they stoned him. It's an act of picking up large stones and throwing it and hurling it at someone that they deemed worthy of death. And as a result, Paul suffered such severe injuries. This is, it has gone past the point of losing consciousness. And he is so viciously attacked and assaulted that his bloody, unconscious body showed no signs of life. That's when you suppose someone is dead. So that's what has happened here. And the question to ask is, how could a crowd, the same crowd that wanted to worship Paul as a god, turn against him with such violence well, uh, there may be two reasons at the very least. First, uh, telling people that their worship is wrong is a time-tested and a reliable way of causing offense. 
It never ceases to amaze me whether you are talking to Christians or not. When you tell them the way that they're worshiping God is wrong, nothing gets them angry more quickly than that. And in fact, that's exactly what Paul told them. Wasn't it verse 15 we read? Paul telling them when he realized what they were trying to do, you should turn from these vain things to a living God. And for the moment, Paul and Barnabas, with great difficulty, were able to restrain them. But obviously, uh, they were very upset, being told that the way they were worshiping God was wrong. And it seems that the anger and resentment was simmering just under the surface. And that tells us something important. The work of reforming false worship with true worship is often very costly. But secondly, and perhaps more uh, importantly, if you remember Acts chapter 9, when Paul was confronted with the risen Savior and he was converted to the Lord, Ananias was shocked that Paul would become a Christian. And he was shocked that Jesus was about to save this notorious opponent and persecutor of the gospel. And this is what Jesus said about Paul at his conversion. Jesus said, For I will show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And you see, what is happening to Paul is exactly as what Jesus said would happen, and indeed as Jesus had intended for Paul to experience. And think about that. You know, the crowd was adoring Paul and Barnabas. And, you know, if Paul had just kept quiet and let the crowd do what they wanted to do, you know, he would have had it easy. But faithfulness to Christ comes with a cost. And Paul will soon write to the Galatians, uh, this, uh, in chapter 6, verse 17, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul is, of course, talking about the scars that he acquired through this stoning. You know, the world that crucified Jesus will not love his disciples. Jesus entered into his glory through the cross. And we, his followers, we, his disciples, we will not be carried up to heaven on a bed of roses with the sweet scent of spring in the air. That's not what's going to happen. And so we need to be disabused of the notion and the fantasy that following Christ is the way to acquiring your best life here. That is a lie. That is a fantasy. And we need to stop trying to please the people of the world, hoping that they will just accept us if we put Christianity in a more manageable, more more acceptable way. The world that crucified Jesus will not love his faithful disciples. Jesus entered into his glory through the cross, and you and I will not have a different path. And so that is the first observation, the stoning 
of Paul. And that brings us to the second observation, which is the hope of glory. Thankfully, Paul survived the assault, and the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. It's a journey of about 60 miles. Uh, it must have been a very difficult journey. Terribly injured in significant pain. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul looks back upon his many trials and he summarizes his hardship in this way. 2 Corinthians 4.9 Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. And indeed, what happens to Paul, what Paul does after he is beaten within an inch of his life is a beautiful illustration of how he was persecuted but not forsaken by God, how he was struck down but not destroyed. Because what we see here, and I think sometimes we miss this, is that faithfulness is a fruit that grows in the soil of adversity. Faithfulness means staying the course, not just when the path is easy, but faithfulness means staying true when the road ahead is full of hindrance. And so Paul pressed on, and when they reached Derby, we read, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Do you see what happened? When Paul and Barnabas went to Derby, it wasn't simply to convalesce. It wasn't simply to take a break from ministry by no means. Paul and Barnabas went to Derby and they preached the gospel. And when they were done preaching the gospel and when many people had been saved to the Lord, they, where did they go? They went back to Lystra, the very place where Paul was stoned. And then they went to Iconium and Antioch where they were threatened by the Jews. You see, Paul, he preached the gospel in the face of danger. Why? Why would he do that? Well, Paul is a pastor at heart, and he knows that Christians need steadfast nurturing if they are to face life's trials. Christians need constant encouragement and instructions if they are to live for God's glory. And so we read, he went. He went to Lystra, he went to Antioch, to Iconium. He went strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Now, in the New Testament, uh, when we read that expression, the faith, it often describes not the faith with which we believe, But in the New Testament, the expression, the faith, is often indicating the faith that is believed. You know, so we, in in both in everyday language and in the New Testament also, the word faith is used in a couple of different ways. It It could mean the faith with which we believe in the Lord Jesus, or 
the faith that is believed, a body of doctrine. And in other places, the faith is called the deposit, or it might be called the teaching, or it might be called the truth. In other words, Paul went to these places and encouraged the disciples to continue in the faith, this body of truth. Now, what was that body of truth? Well, having carefully followed the developments in Acts, not to mention the rest of the New Testament, we have a very good idea what the central core body of truth was. It certainly included God, the creator of all things. It included Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, who died for our sins and rose again from the dead. And it included Jesus, who now sits at God's right hand and reigns with grace and power. And it included Jesus Christ, who will one day return. It included, of course, the Holy Spirit who builds the body of Christ and empowers the believers to live a holy life. And as we have seen throughout Acts, it includes the teaching of caring for the widows, the orphans, and the poor. This was the body of truth that Paul encouraged the believers to to persevere and to persist with. Why? Because knowing God and what he has done for us in Christ and knowing what God's finished work looks like give us stability against life's many hard trials. And so Paul encouraged them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's knowing who God is, what he has done in Christ, what God is doing here and now, what God's finished work will look like that give us the stability, the power, and the grace, and the wisdom to endure the many tribulations of life before we enter the kingdom of God. Now, that does not mean that every Christian must be assaulted and stoned to death like Stephen or be left for dead like Paul. That's not what's required. It simply is a recognition that every person, believer and unbeliever alike, suffers in life. We all suffer, don't we? Not just the Christians, not just the unbelievers, but believer and unbeliever alike, we all suffer. But there is a difference. For unbelievers, suffering in life is hell. Reaching into this mortal space and time sinking the claws of eternal miseries and darkness into their souls. And so ultimately for the unbelievers, suffering serves no good purpose with respect to eternity. And for unbelievers, suffering has no 
redemptive design behind it. But for the believers, suffering in life is walking in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus. And you know, Jesus, he was faithful unto death. And when we suffer, we learn faithfulness. And that's how we learn to walk in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus. And when we suffer, suffering shifts our hope from this world to God. And just as the cross came before glory for Jesus, our many tribulations, our many tribulations will surely bring us to the kingdom of God. In other words, in Christ, in Christ, we do not suffer in vain. Whatever our hardship, however life breaks our hearts, God is working out His gracious design through them. And it is that hope of glory that enabled Paul to persevere. And it is the same hope of glory that empowers us to face many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. And thirdly and lastly, the marks of Jesus. The marks of Jesus. Paul uh, bore on his body the marks of of Jesus, his many scars. But you know, Jesus leaves a mark upon every believer. Look at verse 23 when we read, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. When they had appointed elders for them in every church. Elder-led local church is God's primary instrument for nurturing the believers. Now, we certainly live in an age of churchless Christians. And this was only exacerbated by the COVID lockdown. And what I am increasingly find, uh, finding around me, and I'm sure you are seeing that too, are many professing believers who look upon the church with apathy and contempt. Now certainly there are in life's many hardships that we face, in life's many trials, there are certainly abnormal circumstances that we experience where being a part of a local church is interrupted. Now that happens. Sometimes we might relocate to a new area, and it takes time to find the church, doesn't it? By the way, I'm, I'm deeply concerned when I see people leaving a community and the church that they know and love for the promise of better politics, lower tax, 
without any regard to whether there is a good church or not. It's a spiritual suicide. What are you doing? Maybe where you are, you don't like the politics. Maybe it is expensive. Maybe, though, that's the cost of discipleship for you so that you can follow Christ. Now, you can move, of course, but at the very least, you ought to be thinking the, the, one of the top things on your mind when you are considering a move is, is there a good church? Now, that said, sometimes we do move, and it does take some time to find a church. And that is an abnormal situation where our involvement in the body of Christ might be interrupted. Sometimes we have health challenges. You know, sometimes our physical inabilities, our physical weaknesses and pain can keep us from being a part of our church. And there are numerous other unusual circumstances that can and do keep us from the body of Christ, and that is true. But when these abnormal seasons settle into a regular habit out of contempt and apathy for the church, then that abnormal season becomes an aberrant Season, and then it quickly becomes a sinful and disobedient season. Now, again, I'm not saying that there are no situations in which a Christian is separated from the body of Christ. But it's one thing, it's one thing if providence, life's trials, keep us from the church despite our longing to be a part of a church. That's one thing. And certainly the Lord knows that. It's a different thing altogether when it's apathy and contempt for the church. You see, the churchless Christian loves no one. The churchless Christian serves no one. The churchless Christian humbles himself before no one. And even his so-called worship is mere consumption of religious experiences. And he does not hold God in high enough esteem to acknowledge the intrusion of the divine space and time into his life and schedule. But notice what is happening here. Paul's ministry had the aim of forming a community of faith. And the founding of elder-led local church was not an afterthought, but it was the very goal of gospel proclamation. Uh, By the way, um, and this is a point that I will return to in later passages, when here we read that they appointed elders, the Greek word for appointed has two senses, In the New Testament, it's used in these two senses. Sometimes it means laying on of hands and recognition. And other times it means uh, a group of people, a congregation raising their hand in agreement, as in when you are voting for something. And so when we read here, they appointed elders in every city. The situation here probably is not Paul and Barnabas dictating to a local community 
these are going to be your pastors. Uh, that's what we find in hierarchy. You know, the word hierarchy literally means the rule of the priest, doesn't it? It, it comes from a, a church tradition where some high-ranking church official tells a local congregation, now that person I have determined is going to be our next pastor. Uh, but in the New Testament, the community, the, the body, elect their own pastors and elders. And this was, uh, it seems to me that is what is done here. The congregation elected their pastors and elders with the blessing of Paul. And of course, at this early stage, as immature and as young as that church was, uh, Paul was intimately involved in the establishing of the church as a mature Christian and the apostle of the Lord. So that's what we are seeing here. Not a, a top-down assignment of a pastor to a congregation, but the, the congregation electing their pastors and elders with the approval and the blessing of other mature leaders. Uh, in other words, Presbyterian. Uh, the word presbyter is actually, it means an elder. And that's where we get the polity from. And it seems to me it's doubtful whether the situation has in mind the kind of situations where the, the church pastors and elders are over a, such a large group of people that they have no personal uh, understanding or relationship with their flock. It, it seems to me that's a model that's very strange to the New Testament. Because what we see here is the aim of Paul's ministry is establishing elder-led churches because the church is God's primary instrument of nurturing the believers. The local church is the marks of Jesus upon every believer because it is in the local church that we gather to receive encouragement from his word and sacraments. It is in the local church that we worship Jesus' name. It is in the local church that we are nurtured by shepherds that Jesus appointed. It is in the local church that we serve Jesus' flock with love. It is in the local church that we call upon Jesus in prayer. It is in the local church that we hold in our heart Jesus' love for us together. And it is in the local church that we see the cross of Jesus Christ in our suffering and see his glory at our life's end. That's what the church does. That is the aim of the gospel ministry. And the church is the mark of Jesus Christ upon every believer. Amen. Now let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the instruction that we have received this morning. And we pray, O oh Lord, that, that we will find encouragement from your word. And to know that although you have appointed for us many tribulations, you are working out your gracious purpose through them. And in the end, you will bring us to glory and joy. So help us, O oh Lord, not to despair and not to give up when 
we are tested and tried, but to persevere and walk after you. And I pray, O oh Lord, that in this local church, we may learn to support and love and serve one another. And so be a, an outpost of heaven, an embassy of your kingdom in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.